Over 2,000 years ago, a man lived who was more than familiar with a cold night spent out on the sea. He lived a life that was nothing short of extraordinary. His name was John, the disciple Jesus loved. It would seem that John was the youngest of the disciples. Jesus is around 30, so John could be early 20s. Jesus sees him much like a kid brother. John was a fisherman and he had a brother named James and together they were in the fishing business, probably taking over from their father. This means that they had a family business. They weren't poor, they owned boats, nets, had employees, regular income. Their business partner is quite possibly Peter. And James and John are out one day with their dad, most likely on the water, when all of a sudden, along the shore, walks Jesus. God comes as a man, and he's walking along the shore. And he calls out to the boat, to John. And he invites John to leave his nets, and to leave his business, and to leave his trade, and to come and follow him. And you know what? Amazingly, John does. John walks away from his income, he walks away from the family business in a moment. John leaves it all to follow this traveling teacher named Jesus. Jesus is gathering a bunch of disciples together and from the larger group he's choosing the twelve. Mark chapter 3 says that Jesus went up to a mountainside and all the people that wanted to be potential students were standing beneath him and Jesus chose the twelve. Can you imagine that moment? It's like when you're a kid at recess and, and you're getting ready to pick teams and you've got that sinking feeling in your stomach just hoping that someone chooses you. John's there with these other people who have listened to Jesus and, and want him to be their teacher and John in all likelihood, may have been the youngest. He may have been the youngest of all, somewhere in his early 20s. And Jesus looks at John, amongst all the others. He looks at John and picks John. And John is like, yes, I'm in. I can't believe this. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The sovereign God of the universe comes down to the earth and as he's picking people that he would like to love and he would like to eat with and he would like to travel with and he'd like to teach he looks at you and he calls your name and he invites you to come and to be a student of his John is not some sort of limp doormat of a guy he's a full zealous brother he's committed and he wants power he wants change. He wants things to go the way that Jesus has been teaching. And he figures the best way to do that would be to sit in a place of authority. So he stupidly asks Jesus, who's the greatest disciple? Him and his brother James are what you might call fiery. So much so that Jesus gives them both a nickname, Sons of Thunder. I love the fact that the three guys that Jesus keeps closest to his heart, the three who are his go-to guys, 
they're all fiery. They're all passionate. None of them are insipid wimps who never speak out what they believe. Now Jesus teaches them that they need to learn how to be servants. They need to learn how to love. It's one thing to be passionate, but he doesn't squash their passion or castrate it. And as one of the inside three with Peter and his brother James, John is privy to a whole bunch of experiences, intimate moments that no one else got to see. And that's how John got to write about them, to pass them on. John with Peter and James are the only disciples to see Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop. They're the only disciples to see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. Coming up to the Last Supper, right before Jesus was to die, Jesus told Peter and John, you go ahead and you set up this room in this particular way to celebrate the Passover. And then myself and the other men will join you. And so John and Peter run ahead and they set up everything for the Passover feast. That great classic painting where Jesus is reclining with his disciples sitting at the Last Supper. Can you imagine? John set that table. John set that table. How many times have you ever seen the table of the Last Supper? However it was portrayed, John set that table. And John was there at the Last Supper with his head resting on Jesus' chest like a kid brother in a culture where touch like that is totally normal and Peter, the leader, is too chicken to ask but Peter gets John to ask the master who's going to betray you, Jesus? And Jesus intimates it's Judas who's going to betray me. John is there on that night in that garden, Gethsemane John's there when Jesus specifically asks him to stay awake and pray. John fell asleep. Waking, he watches the soldiers come and arrest Jesus. Under the cover of darkness, Jesus was tried, falsely accused. And as he went from trial to trial to trial, the Bible says that there were only two disciples who followed all the way. Peter and John. The story goes then that Jesus ultimately was stripped naked and he was beaten and he was abused and he was mocked and John's there angry. His big brother, his God and dearest friend has been wrongly accused and on, not only do they convict him they convict him to death they strip him they mock him they whip him many prisoners died right there didn't even make it to their crucifixion then a crown of thorns thorns two three inches long are pressed into Jesus head and they plucked the beard out of his face and they spat upon him and they mocked him and they made him carry a crossbar, an enormous and heavy wooden crossbar. And to publicly humiliate him, they told him to carry that crossbar through town so that everyone could spit on him 
and mock him. And John saw all that. John saw that. No one had ever loved John as much as Jesus had. And I can't imagine John had ever loved anybody as much as he loved Jesus. It says in the Gospel that John was there. We don't know that any other apostle was there. We have no proof, according to the Bible, that any apostle was there except for John when they hoisted Jesus up on that cross. We know that John was there. He was there with the women. He was there with Mary, Jesus' mother. When the Son of God is dying for the sins of the world, John is standing under him with Mary. Jesus says to Mary, this is your son now. And he says to John, this is your mother. I mean, what kind of relationship does John have with Jesus where when Jesus is hanging on a cross dying for our sin, he looks at John and he appoints him to care for his mother. That was John. And then on the third day, two disciples are running to the tomb. And it was Peter and John. And it says that John got there first. John's the younger. He's the fit one. He got there first. John got there first. The first apostle to see the empty tomb of Jesus, the risen Christ. The stone rolled away. No Roman guards. He peeks his head in. There's just linen and burial coverings. Nobody, no Jesus. John was there. Peter, James and John are back fishing, casting their nets, bringing in fish. And the Bible says that all of a sudden Jesus came walking along the shore line as they're out on the boat. And everybody looks out and they're wondering, who is that? Who's the first person to recognize that that's the risen Jesus Christ. It's John. John is the first apostle to see the empty tomb. John is the one, I mean, I love this, John is there at the Last Supper. John sees the trials, John sees the crucifixion, John sees the empty tomb, and then John sees Jesus standing upon the shore, and John goes out to greet him. And after Jesus returns to heaven, with John witnessing it, and the Spirit of God is sent at Pentecost, and John witnesses it. John becomes a rock-solid part of the early church. John is a teacher, and a preacher, and a pastor, and in the first century he becomes the great teacher that taught all the other teachers. John trained men. He taught them. He did the same thing as Jesus did. He just mimicked his teacher. That's all he did. And the church spread and it was tough for him. John saw all of the other disciples die. He saw Judas Iscariot kill himself, commit suicide. And he saw all the other disciples get brutally martyred. His brother James went quickly. Later Peter was crucified upside down. John was the youngest and John was the strongest. And he and Peter were definitely the boldest. And one by one John saw all of his classmates die. And he saw Paul come to Christ. And he met Paul. And ultimately heard of Paul's death. And throughout the book of Acts, 
He works with Peter to untangle church issues and theological difficulties and help guide the children of God. And he writes the book of John later in life as a very old man. And he writes to the young Christians. And he says, my little born-again ones, my dear little children. John became the grandfather of the church. He's not the strong young man anymore. He's the feeble, weak, old man. And he takes the teaching that he has been giving. And he writes letters. And he writes a gospel. And he tries to summarize what he knows of Jesus. And he says, What our ears have heard and what our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. John says, I was there, I heard him teach, I saw him, I saw him feed 25,000 people with a few fishes and loaves, I saw him call Lazarus out of the grave, I saw him walk on water, I saw him die, I saw him rise from the dead, I saw him ascend into heaven. History tells us that they tried to kill John by submerging him in a vat of boiling water and they tried to boil him alive. John didn't die. They wanted John to be another Judas. They wanted him to deny Christ. They wanted him to be a betrayer, but John would not deny Christ. So they sent John off to an island called Patmos, where he was in exile. It was off the present-day coast of Turkey, and there he was, just in a barren place, all by himself, lonely, removed from his church, removed from the people that he loved. And in the first chapter of Revelation, the great book that he wrote, he says, it was the Lord's day and I was in the spirit. And then Jesus shows up and speaks to John, his friend, his God. After all those years, Jesus shows up to talk to John in his moment of greatest brokenness and deepest pain. And John receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. What would ultimately become the last book of the entire Bible, unveiling the end of all things and the final beginning of the new creation. You could say that his qualifications to speak of the things of God are pretty strong. The Gospel according to John. Well, the aim of this message in particular really is to whet your appetite to read the book of John. That's probably it. And part of me feels like that may have already been done, so maybe we call it quits. Like, um, it could be good to um, go home, and those of you who are interested, read the book. It's a mystery. This, so so um, would you agree, is it fair to say, like, John has a unique perspective? Is that fair to say? Like, when I did the research for that, I, it blew me away. I thought, wow, I did not realise how unique his perspective is. If you look at church history, this is crazy. John dies towards the end of the first century. His disciple is Polycarp. 
who is the major player for all of Christianity, defending Christianity, teaching the truths of what is correct doctrine. This is while her most horrendous, horrendous persecution is going on against Christians. They're wrapping them in um, dead animals and feeding the Christians to wild dogs and animals. Like it, awful stuff. Just look up a bit of church history. It goes, the Apostle John, longest living apostle, um, you know, disciple of Jesus, he disciples Polycarp. Polycarp lives most of the second century. Polycarp disciples Irenaeus. Irenaeus lives nearly to the end of the third century. Isn't that crazy? Do the history yourself. Have a look at it. Three guys, John, Jesus, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus, they nearly get all the way through to when the canon of Scripture is finalised. Isn't that amazing? Like to me, we're talking about praying for, for Michael and Alex because discipleship matters. Doesn't that just tell you in God's economy, discipleship is so important. John knows Jesus like no one else and it just happens that the most impacting man of the second century is a guy that sat at the feet of John. And then the next most effective person is Irenaeus who's... Mentor was Polycarp. So hunt down people to share in your life who have been at the feet of Jesus. Like, it's the way that it, it works. So you come to the Gospel of John and you think, oh, I wonder how that guy, like who had just so, such an incredible insight of, to, of who Jesus is, how would he start his Gospel? And this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. Wow, they're the words he started with. Sounds like a jelly puzzle, like a mystery puzzle. Like, what? what? That's the best you can come up with? It, it is the best. That's the best. He was the word. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. This is my mate Jesus, John is saying. This is the one I know. Through him all things were made. I am convinced, having spent my time with him, and having been persecuted all the way through the next 70 years of the century, I am convinced he is who he said he was. And this is what I'm telling you. This is the truth. Through him, all things were made. That's it. You've you got to make sure you don't let that just flow over you like, yeah, heard that all before. You know, he is saying that that man who walked next to him breathed out the universe. And we as Christians have to keep coming back to that and let that go bang. Is that what the Christians believe? Yes, it is. That when we worship Jesus meek and mild, we're worshipping the one who goes, star, life, light. This is the author of everything. This is what he's saying. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness. I saw it. But the darkness has not overcome it and hasn't even understood it. At the end of his gospel, he says why he wrote the gospel, John 20, 30. He says this is the reason. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That's the um, gospel of John. And this isn't John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a different person. So this is John. 
But these are written, I've written what I wrote, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's writing mainly to a Greek audience. I, when I was doing the research on this, I read that Greeks outnumbered, in the audience that John was writing to, Greeks outnumbered Jews by 100,000 to 1. I can't imagine that's true. I don't know. Someone do the research on that. Like, I, I, I'm looking back at that going, that can't be right, but it's an enormous amount of Greeks compared to Jews. So he writes his testimony about who Jesus is in which language? The Greek language. Anyone heard of Logos? Like It sounds Greek, doesn't it? Logos. Logos is the Greek word for which word that we just read out? In the beginning was the word. W-O-R-D. In the beginning was the word. Do you know, it was a bit weird. It's a bit weird. In the beginning was the word. The word is the English translation for in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. So that, that, that's the connection. So when J- John is writing this, he's writing it so that this massive Greek people would understand who Jesus is. And he begins it by saying, in the beginning was the logos. Now, for Greeks, you guys ever heard about the Logos? I I preached on this like six months ago. I mentioned it in a sermon. The Logos is a really important idea in Greek thinking for at least 500 years before Christ. So this thinking emerged and you got Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, all the stuff through Roman history coming up to Jesus. 500 years, everyone is thinking the most dominant cultural defining... um, Uh, nationality in the world is the Greek way of thinking. So this is hugely across that whole real modern world of the Mediterranean. Everyone knows about Logos. And John says, hey, you guys know about Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Greeks go, yeah, we know that. The Logos is an impersonal force that pulls chaos together. The Greeks thought that um, they taught, you know, life is chaos. You could never put your foot in the same river twice in the same spot because it's always moving so they said life is like that it's complex it's moving um we've got the gods you know the gods aphrodite zeus the different gods that they interplay with but the greeks understood for 500 years that there was this power an impersonal force called the logos which breathed life into everything it held together the opposites sort of yin yang-esque like it, it it brought um a constancy in the midst of chaos, life and death together, good and evil, light and darkness. So you can imagine when he says, in the beginning was the Logos, everyone goes, yeah, gotcha. And don't think that people aren't sitting around listening to people speak. Anyone travelled to the Middle East around Israel? Yeah, yeah. Isn't it crazy when you go into some ancient place like Petra and there is a stone amphitheatre that seats 10,000 people. Ephesus, 80,000 people. I remember standing there going, what? These guys were like into rhetoric, like speeches. They were into drama. They were into thinking. So these aren't dummies. You've got to think these are really smart people who have been affected by really the greatest minds of, for thousands of years that came out of Greece that started democracy and the Greek language is the most amazing language ever in, in, in uh, human history. 
So these guys are really smart, and here's John, the ex-fisherman, and he says, in the beginning was the Logos, but I want to tell you a little bit more about the Word, the creative utterance, because that's actually Jesus. He's the Word, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the creative utterance of God in the Trinity, and I can't explain that. That's just, that's a mystery. But the Bible says God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Son is also known as the Logos. Have you heard that stuff? All I can say is just state it. Like, it just, it's just the way that it is. But this is what John is telling in his gospel. He's saying this Logos, Jesus, was with God in the beginning, and he is God. And in verse 14... Of chapter 1, John says, The Word, the Logos, became flesh, became one of us. It's called the incarnation. God became flesh. That's what I want to say. That's what I want to testify. If you look up Matthew, beginning of Matthew, anyone remember what's at the very beginning of Matthew? Anyone? Genealogy. Why is the genealogy there? It's proving his human history. Luke does the same thing. One goes to Abraham, one goes to David. But they're just trying to say, you know, this guy's he's a human being. He's fully human. John is saying he's not just human, he's God. I know him better than anyone else. And I'm telling you, the guy that walked amongst us is actually God. I spoke um, six months ago and talked about the story that Soren Kierkegaard says of the prince who falls in love with this poor woman and he thinks, how can I get to know this woman? He hasn't found someone he loves in all the royal um, bunch of women that he's known Um, and he's like, how can I get to know this beautiful woman and uh, if I turn up with my entourage of power, how will I know that she loves me? So he strips himself of all his wealth, takes off the robe, the scepter, the crown and he goes and gets to know this poor person, this woman and uh, they fall in love. Soren Kierkegaard, great Danish philosopher. And, and he says, this is a picture of what happened in the incarnation. The prince became a pauper to win his bride so that they could fall in love. And the fairy tale says they live happily ever after. Well, that's actually the story of Christianity. That God loved the world, saw people that he wanted as his bride for his son. Jesus became a pauper and uh, literally born in a stable poor man, humble man, went to a cross to prove his love for his bride. And who is his bride? The church, us. This is the story. I love the way that um, John's gospel in um, a couple of verses, and you know, this you may just find this boring, but it, it literally just blows me away. In the 21st century, one of the biggest... The biggest um, on the cusp of knowing is cosmology, like the beginning of the cosmos. We, we, we're, we're learning more than ever about where it all began, like the very beginning. In the 1800s, 1850, you had Darwin, and he's talking about the origin of what? Species, like biology. So 21st century, big question is the origin of the cosmos, where you putting probes out in a space and building amazing contraptions that are many kilometres 
long, and if you're a physicist, you know so much better than me, but they're, they're splitting atoms and going, oh, this is how the cosmos began. Of course, Darwin still, we believe, most of us in the secular world at least, sort of the theory of evolution about where biology all started from on this life. And the 20th century had some of the great minds, the philosophers, who actually <coughs> say, well, biology's ah, nice and even cosmology is nice to think about. But really the main question is when you look at another human being and you go, why do you even ask the question of why we're here? That's, that trumps everything. Are you with me? That trumps everything. Like, and I agree. <laughs> I think philosophy build, beats everything because it asks the question, why are you conscious? Why are you there? Why are you, why are you even being able to come up with the theory of evolution? And in John's first chapter, he gives the answer to 21st century cosmology. And you get to choose. We get to choose whether we believe it or not. He gives the answer to 19th century biology. He gives the answer to 20th century philosophy when he just says, the author of life is Jesus. It's the author of life. The nature of reality, the philosophical question, it's spirit. It's the nature of reality. It's spirit. It's knowing God. That's the nature of reality, relationship with the spirit who is eternal and he started it all. And also what I love is um, if you track through John's Gospel, does anyone know what the main theme is to contrasting things? Light and darkness. Light and dark. So he says, this one, the Logos, Jesus, was life and light. What's the first thing that was created? In the beginning, Light. Not the lights in the sky. Somehow light and darkness. God separated the light and the darkness. And another amazing thing you'll find is in the, in, if you look at Genesis, you go in the beginning and then John's Gospel is the only one that says in the beginning. He's matching it up. He's saying in the beginning in Genesis and then the pinnacle of creation is humanity and then they fall. John says in the beginning and oh wow, Jews are going, yeah, in the beginning, yeah, yeah. Well, and then the pinnacle of creation is second Adam perfect human, Jesus. Pinnacle of creation. I'm telling you about the human who got it right. Um, and that's what John wants to just, just wants to lift up Jesus and go, he's everything. He's the second Adam. He got it right. Second human, Adam and Eve. He fulfills it all. Every dream that God had for humanity. But what I love is this idea of light. God is outside of space, time and matter. Like in the cogs of this world that we are in, it's all about space, time, and matter. God is outside that. Space, time, and matter do not work without one factor that you must have, light. Because matter means nothing if you can't actually see it or sense it, like at all. But light needs space because... That light's got to travel a distance for us to behold it and for it to illuminate. So there's this really cool connection of life needing light. If you create something which is matter, you actually need space and time for light to illuminate the matter 
so that it even matters. Jesus is light. I know this is trippy, but like maybe some of you really go, yeah, I want to worship Jesus now because he's, he's the light. He's the light. He, he's the one that makes the space, time and matter make sense, whether you look at it from a scientific point of view or just an a, a understanding, your heart's cry point of view. Jesus is, in John's opinion, so much more than we could ever imagine. That's the bottom line. That if your Jesus is like this big, that's okay. You just got the wrong Jesus. Your Jesus is wrong. Read John's Gospel. Read John's Gospel with an open heart and mind. Just go, God... Help me see Jesus for who he is. You know, John, it's John's gospel that has this cool line where the soldiers come, I'm pretty sure it is, the soldiers come to take him away and um, he sort of looks at them and they fall to the ground on the ground. Is this the one? Is that John's? Anyone know? I just, John has these cool little touches where he goes, oh, by the way, every now and then he flexes his muscles and lets people know, you know what, I am God. You may think you have power, but I am God. I think, um, in the end, the greatest, the greatest truth that John, the friend and disciple of Jesus, discovered is that the God who created everything, who was his friend, loved him. Just loved him. That's why, if you think of some of the most incredible verses that you might have stored away in the back of your mind... A lot of them are in John's Gospel. And they paint not just some powerful, huge God out there. It's, and especially if you look at 1 John and Revelation, is how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called the children of God. Oh, how great the love of God. Shown to me through the God that I touched, my mate Jesus, my Lord. So when we worship him and, and we get a hold of him being glorious and light and the starter of the cosmos, and we've got to hold that intention with this incredible testimony that John gives us that Jesus chose to come to earth and get to, and get to know a bunch of blokes. But there's this beautiful touch that it's the men that abandoned him and the women that were with him at the end. Like it was the women that were there with him. So he, he, in appropriate ways, he loved men and women, humans. And, you know, you and I can know his love. You know, like if, if, if every now and then you don't feel overwhelmed with emotion that Jesus loves you, hang in there. It will come. <laughs> because it's, it's the most <laughs> incredible thing. You're loved by God. Through Jesus, the Son. I've often thought to myself at different times, I'd love to know what you really like, God. And then, and then it's like the Spirit says, remember Jesus? God's exactly like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, I would put it to you, there's no other human being's testimony who would be more accurate than this bloke, John. Lord, thanks for your word.